0: Well, as uh, many of you know, because you prayed for us, uh, there was a group of us who had the privilege of going to Mexico City this last week, and so uh, I wanted to share some of the brief highlights of our time in Mexico City, and uh, mainly bring you up to speed on Chuck and Carla Top, and the chance that we had to spend with them. If you want more details, because there'll be a lot more than what I can share, then take me out to lunch, and I'll be glad to tell you everything. (laughs) Deal? Deal? Well, the, the first thing I want to give you a picture of, guys, if you'll go to the next slide, is just who all went. This is the Motley crew, the Gilberts, uh, Carrie and Sherry and their family, and uh, Mark and Bonnie and Meredith and then my family. There's the, the comedian. You see Grant right there with his nice face? A funny story about uh, Grant and uh, Mark this week. There was a point in time early in the trip where one of the taxi drivers just inadvertently called Mark Jerry, Okay. Well, nobody paid any attention to it, but Grant heard it, right? So for the rest of the week, he would walk up and say, walk up to Mark and say, Hey, Jerry, what's going on? (laughs) All week long. And Mark would say, Nothing, Leroy. What about you? (laughs) But we had a great time. A great time. Um, If you go to, this is the first night we were there, a a popular spot that we always like to go in Mexico City called Tacuba Cafe. Uh, It's actually an old convent that they've converted into a restaurant, and a beautiful, beautiful place, as is much of Mexico City in terms of the architecture. If you'll go to the next slide, this is one of the cathedrals. There's plenty of them in Mexico City, and they are beautiful in terms of their design and architecture, their uh, intricacies in terms of what you see. Uh, It's just beautiful to look at, both on the outside, and if you go to the next side, you can kind of... Get a picture of the inside. Whenever you see gold, it's gold. <laughs> the gold leaf typically overlaying uh, a lot of the architecture that exists within the inside of these cathedrals, and, and they are something to behold. If you go to the next one, you'll get another idea of just the, the detail of the, that which exists inside uh, of Mexico City in these cathedrals. So one of the things that we were able to do is uh, take our family and expose them to a different culture to give them an idea of what exists in other parts of the world that is really unique in comparison to what we see here in America. Uh, I remember the first time I went to Mexico, uh, saw these same things, uh, viewed buildings and in some cases pyramids that were thousands of years old, right? Two weeks later, I went on a business trip to Philadelphia, the, the birthplace of the United States in many senses, and, and there it was a couple of hundred years old. And I realized for the first time at that point why so many around the world consider Americans babies, infants in their society. Because in comparison to much of the world around us, that's true, Uh, especially when you look at places like Mexico City where there's such a rich, long heritage of, of history there. If you'll go to the next slide, this is one of the pyramids. Now, the kids are on this little altar because this was actually an altar used, or at least they think it was, where they did child sacrifices, and so we told them if they didn't behave, <laughs> what was going to happen to them. You can go to the next slide. The, this is the tops. These are the, uh, the ones that are there in Mexico City. Jonathan, as you may know, is at Wayland Baptist in Plainview. Priscilla is there on the left. Josiah, Chuck, and Carla, and Tabitha is, is the baby. And so we had a chance to spend some time with them. If you'll go to the next slide. This blue door is the entrance to their new church. Um, It doesn't look like much, but to them, it is a very special place because unlike anything they've ever had since they've been in Mexico, this is not something they rent. (laughs) This is something they have built. And so let me give you a little look on the inside. This is Chuck teaching uh, that Sunday morning. We had the privilege of going to spend time with them during church and uh, to be a part of that church service with them. In fact, our taxi driver was a little bit late, so they held up church waiting for us to get there so that we could be a part of that That time with them. So, this is Chuck. You'll see Carla over there on the right. If you go to the next slide, guys, she has a ministry to the deaf. And so, while Chuck is teaching, she is signing the message to a fairly large group of people probably 10, I would guess, eight or nine or ten people that are deaf that are watching her. Uh, as she teach, she translates what uh, what uh, Chuck is teaching. It's a, a beautiful thing to watch. In fact, uh, I couldn't understand Chuck, but I knew what he was saying because I could see what was happening with, with Carla. It, it's true. Okay, let's go to the next slide. While the service was going on, there's a little partition you can see there that allowed the Sunday school classes to take place at the same time. So these are the kids, and they're conducting uh, just Sunday school classes during the the church service that allows them to kind of grow and learn in that process as well. Apparently, they memorized a verse in Spanish and had signs that went with it, so they did sign language with the Spanish uh, verse. And our boys did and, and, and Corin did the best they could to keep up, but they said they were pretty lost. Um, if you'll go to the next slide. I want to give you an idea of the neighborhood in which they minister. So I'm standing on the top of the roof here, and I'm looking on the street side of where this church is. If you'll go to the other slide, this is the other side. Uh, of where that church is located. Uh, these are houses and places where, where people live in this neighborhood, and this is kind of the, the, uh, the economic strata in which Chuck and, and Carla minister. It would be the, the lower class of the Mexican society. Uh, I don't In my time there, uh, I don't know that I've ever really observed a middle class. I've seen low class and I've seen upper class, but there's not a whole lot in between, as best I can tell. And Chuck and Carla minister to this lower class part of society for the most part. If we go to the next slide. After church, we spent the day at Chuck and Carla's house. And it was just a great time of fellowship with them. One of the, reasons that, one of the main reasons that we went was just to encourage them, to spend time with them, to love on them, to tell them that we appreciate what they are doing in the sacrifice of service that they're giving to the, to the Mexican people there. And so it was a blessing to both us and hopefully to them just to to be together. And if you go to this next slide, let me just kind of close with this. The main thing that I would want to do is bring back to you some things that you can be praying for for the tops. So get your pens out, all right? I want you to write these things down. These are some things that uh, I would ask you to be faithful to pray for. Uh, First of all, I would ask you to pray for just encouragement and shared leadership in their ministry. I think it's a fair statement to make that they're tired. (laughs) This is a difficult place to minister. And more difficult because they just don't have people rising up from within the body in which they serve who are sharing the leadership with them. Um, For the most part, their family are the ones that carry out the the work of ministry. Um, So pray for them. Pray specifically for a plurality of elders. Pray that there would be men that would rise up to partner with chuck to help lead that church body and ultimately be those that carry on that ministry when chuck and carla leave to go to another work of ministry you would hope that that would be the desire and the design so with that in mind the other thing you can pray for is priscilla priscilla is their oldest daughter in the home right now and this is her last year in the home she will be leaving to go to college this next year and Probably will join Jonathan at Wayland, as best as I can remember. But she'll be leaving the home. Um, That's significant for a couple of reasons. It's big to change from the culture that she's grown up in to a new culture that she will now have to adapt to. And so pray for her. But also pray for the top family because, like I mentioned, their family is really their missionary force. And so now when she leaves, they'll be reduced by 50% (laughs) because they have four kids and two of them will be out of the home. And so it becomes even more difficult to carry out that work there because their kids are getting old enough to, to move on and to, to go to school. So pray for them in that regard. And then the last thing is just to pray for the completion of their church. Uh, it's a concrete box right now, but a beautiful concrete box to them. And there's some things that they want to do to try to finish out the work there. Um, and so just pray for that um, in terms of the, the details. And then just how to proceed moving forward the, The government in Mexico has all kinds of pitfalls that you can inadvertently fall into and lose everything before you ever knew what happened. And so that's always a risk for them. And so just pray for their protection as they move forward in this new place that they call home and that uh, they'd be able to serve for a long time um, in ministry in Mexico in that little concrete box that they call home. So if you would, let's pray together for them as we begin our time. Father, we do come to you this morning, and we uh, want to remember specifically our friends, Chuck and Carla Top, who are very much a part of this church family and would consider this their church home. And we pray, Father, that uh, as they continue in the work of ministry, that you would encourage them, that there would be people who would rise up to be to serve as leaders. And we pray specifically for elders, uh, shepherds of that body, uh, Mexican men who would be willing to disciple and to care for that body of believers that you've called them to. We pray for Priscilla as she prepares to go off to college in that transition, but also for the family left behind in the ministry that they will carry out without their two oldest kids and to give them encouragement and strength in that. And Father, we also just pray for the completion of their church. Uh, what a beautiful place it is to them right now, but there's still work to be done. So. We pray for the finances and for the details of the labor that needs to take place for for that to occur, that it would all unfold as you would intend, and that you would protect them in uh, an environment where it would be easy for them to, to lose everything before they knew what happened. Would you please protect them from that and give them the ability to minister in that place for many, many years to come? We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we were in Philippians, so if you would go ahead and turn to to Philippians chapter 2, and let's make sure that we consider our passage this morning in the context of where we've been so far. If you'll look at verse 12 of chapter 2, you'll see that Paul begins this part of the passage that we will look at with the words, so then, my beloved. So then is another way of saying, therefore. It's a transition word that connects what has been said up to this point to what will be said moving forward. I believe Paul, as we've talked about, is looking back to chapter 1, verse 27, where we see this transition from him describing to the Philippian church his circumstances and what's going on in his life to then focus his attention on the recipients of that letter, the Philippian church. He begins by telling them, if you'll remember, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He calls the Philippian church to to live in such a way that the name of Christ is exalted above all things in all that they do. In order to do this, Paul makes it clear that there are no lone rangers in the Christian church. We are created for community. And God calls us to strive together, he says, for the faith of the gospel. Shoulder to shoulder. Standing firm as citizens of heaven who really are living in enemy territory. A place that is not our home. And the dominant character quality of our life together is humility. Serving the needs of others as more important than our own. Emptying ourselves Out of the fullness of who we are in Christ. Having this attitude in ourselves. Remember that was also in Christ Jesus. Who although he existed in the form of God. Did not consider equality with God. A thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. Taking on the form of a bondservant. Jesus Christ. Fully God. And fully man. That lived a life of complete submission to, will, to the will of God the Father. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now look at verse 12. Keeping these things in mind, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to will, And to work for His good pleasure. You'll remember, we learned a couple of weeks ago that that Jesus obeyed by sacrificing His own independence. Choosing instead to live a life in complete dependence upon His Father. Remember His prayer, not my will, Father, but Your will be done. This is how he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He lived in submission to the will of his Father, doing nothing apart from him. Paul takes this idea and he turns to you and I and he says, just as Jesus accomplished our salvation through his humble obedience unto death, we too must experience the fruit of this salvation by the same Humble obedience. We follow his example and sacrifice our independence in submission to his will. We are called to live for, as the verse tells us, his good pleasure, not our own. Not our will, but his will be done. Now I understand that there are those who take this verse where it says, Work out your salvation. And they develop an entire theological system around this one verse. They suggest that that this verse supports the idea that we have a part in our salvation. God did his part by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. But then we must do our part in order to complete the work that he started the fear and trembling exists because there's a lot at stake here if i don't do my part i don't get into heaven i've seen what this looks like in mexico city as people crawl on their knees across the concrete floor begging mary to pray for them begging the saints to intercede for them begging god to have mercy on them, For the things that they have done or failed to do in order to merit His favor and forgiveness. I've seen it. And there is an undeniable fear where they live life just outside of the grip of God's grace. And their religious obligation is necessary for the security of their salvation. But I want us to be careful here. Because this tendency to work for your salvation is not restricted to a few select denominations. In fact, I believe it is the temptation of every single believer in Jesus Christ, including those of us in this room this morning. Because grace oftentimes, oftentimes just sounds too good to be true. We're just as guilty. When we attend church on Sunday, because we didn't have such a good week the week before. Maybe we made a few mistakes or missteps in our walk with Christ. And so we're hoping, we're hoping that the good decision to be here on Sunday might make up for the bad decisions that we made earlier this week. This is working for your salvation and not working out your salvation. It's an attempt to, to balance the tally sheet, to make sure that the, that the good side outweighs the bad side. It is a man-centered theology, and it is not biblical. We can even see this happen when we engage in spiritual disciplines. We might pray, or fast, or, or even give money in hopes that what we do can be added to what God has done. And when these things are combined, they, they somehow reach a threshold that merits His love and acceptance. His grace becomes something that we earn and not a gift we receive. But listen to me clearly. The only possible way that we can come to that conclusion, especially from the context of this verse right here, is if we rip it out of that context. And we build a theology of works salvation that is not supported in the whole of Scripture. By grace you have been saved. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. We give ourselves way too much credit. When we wrongly assume that we have something to do or contribute to our salvation. Way too much credit. Just look at verse 13 again. It says, For it is God who is at work in you, how? To both will and to work according to His good pleasure. God is the initiator. The will and the good works come from Him. He who began a good work in you is the same one who will perfect it. Working out your salvation is accomplished through dependence, not independence. The example of Christ, the basis upon which this command is given, makes that point crystal clear. Working out your salvation is a submissive response to God's gracious initiative. It is not working to earn His favor. It is working because of His favor. Our motivation is not His judgment, because Scripture tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead, our motivation is His grace, right? Because what does the Scripture tell us? It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That's what it says. This is good news. This is freedom. This is the privilege of walking in the good works, as Ephesians 2.10 tells us, that He prepared beforehand. Living out of the fullness of, of who we are in Christ. Not earning your salvation, but living out the gift of your salvation. I think it's the only possible way that we can have joy in the Lord. Otherwise, we spend our life trying to please him instead of trusting that he is completely satisfied in us, not because of what we 've done for him, but because what he has done on our behalf that 's why he 's satisfied. Do you see the difference? But where does this idea of fear and trembling come in? It's a, it's a legitimate question. How does that apply to what we've just said? How does it fit into this idea of submission? Well, if you would, turn to Ephesians. Just a few pages before where you're at in Philippians. Ephesians chapter 6. In this section of, Phili- of, of, of Ephesians, Paul is explaining the divine design of relationships of how we are to relate to one another he talks about husbands and wives he talks about parents and children and now look at what he says in chapter 6 verse 5 he says slaves be obedient to those who your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling ah there are those words again in the sincerity of your heart as to christ not by way of eye service as men pleasers but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. It said, slaves are to be obedient to their masters with fear and trembling. Now we know from the context that this is not a fear of misuse or abuse. Because if you look later on in verse 9, Paul says that the master is to treat the slave who works for them with respect and fairness. Putting aside anything that is threatening or or demeaning, They were to treat those who worked for them in a way that would please the Lord. Because they too served a master, Jesus Christ, who was an example to them in his submission to his Father. The attitude of the slave and the master for that matter was a heart of surrender to Christ first. And the fear and trembling was an attitude of of awe of what he had done on their behalf. They were humbled, even compelled to do nothing short of what Christ had demonstrated in what he did for them. They were to be a slave to Christ, not a slave to men. I want you to know that I do believe there is a lot at stake in this passage that we're looking at in Philippians. But it is not your salvation. Hear that clearly. There is a lot at stake. But it is not your salvation. Here is what it is. The reputation of Christ. That is what is at stake. And that should be the motivation that we need. The fear and trembling that encourages us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me remind you, the primary target of Paul's teaching here in this letter to the Philippians is not the individual, it is the church. Paul is calling for a corporate obedience, a mutual humility, an interaction that considers the needs of others within the context of that community as more important than your own personal needs. Paul is calling the church to conduct themselves... With fear and trembling. For the cause of Christ. Not as men pleasers. But as slaves to Christ. Doing the will of God. Living out our salvation. In the good works. That he prepared beforehand. In in submission to his will. Giving preference to one another. In love. This is his good pleasure. And I believe it is his good pleasure. Not just because it brings Him glory, because it does. But I believe as well, it is His good pleasure. Because of the joy we experience when this is the pattern of our life together in Him. That's why Paul turns to that which robs us of that joy in the next few verses. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. This is actually a pretty fun verse to look through because of the words that are are used here. The words grumbling and disputing are, are, are quite descriptive. The first word grumbling is onomatopoetic in the original language. That, that just basically means it means what it sounds like when you pronounce the word. The word is gongissimos That's the word. That's how it's pronounced. It, it has this idea of complaining or, or whispering underneath your breath. But the second word is equally as descriptive. The word here is dialogamos. Dialogamos. It's this idea of Petty questioning or arguing. So if you put the two together, it brings with it this idea of this behind-the-scenes murmuring. Why are they doing it that way? That's not the way this other church does it. You know, I'm not sure I like that style of music. Did you see what she was wearing? You know, all they do in their home group is socialize. That man wouldn't hold that conviction if he was a real follower of Christ. Gong dialogamos. Gong dialogamos. Whispering underneath your breath words of discontent and divisive arguments. That's what it means. The words are very intentional. And I believe they have a precedent. In fact, I'm convinced that Paul had this precedent in mind when he chose these words because they're repeated throughout the wandering of the Israelites in the wilderness. Let's look at one of those examples. There's plenty. Let's just choose one. Exodus chapter 16. If you would, go ahead and turn there. Exodus chapter 16. Verse 2. Exodus chapter 16. Genesis and then Exodus, chapter 16, verse 2 says this. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled, there's the same word, against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, listen to this. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Are you kidding me? They were slaves. Moses and Aaron had led them out of that slavery, and yet they're looking them in the eyes and they're saying, Oh, I'd rather be in Egypt. At least we had meat to eat and our tummies were full with bread. Such whining and complaining right on the heels of their miraculous redemption. And something tells me that most of this was done underneath their breath to each other, behind the scenes. Until they stirred up enough discontent that they could collectively go to Moses and Aaron and say, We're tired of this. This is what we want. But then look what happens in verse 8. And Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and the bread to to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumbling, which you grumble against Him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. (laughs) Grumbling and complaining is just another way to describe selfishness and empty conceit. It is the critical spirit that always seems to find something wrong in everything that goes on. Especially for those who are in leadership. Just like we see here in the wilderness. But having a critical spirit is not a virtue. When this is your attitude and not humility, you create division. Not unity. As Moses reminded us, our grumbling is not against man. You're grumbling against God. Think about this. The Israelites still had sand in their shoes. From crossing the Red Sea on dry land. They still had blisters on their hands. From the oppressive slavery to Pharaoh. The plagues of Egypt were still a vivid memory in their minds. They were standing there, having been miraculously redeemed by the hand of God, and instead of bowing at his feet, they selfishly stood for their own personal rights. Did you hear what they said? We deserve more than this. We want meat. We want meat! We want meat! That's what they did. It's embarrassingly ridiculous, isn't it? Does it not reek of pride and, and, and selfishness? Well, it's no different for you and I. We too are God's people, chosen by Him. We were once dead in our transgressions, but we've been made alive alive. Together with Christ. We were once slaves to sin. But we too have been redeemed. The fragrance of His grace fills this room. We don't stand for our rights. We relinquish them. We give preference to one another. Regarding the other as more important than ourselves. This is not about our rights. This is about His Glory. That's what's at stake. Turn back to verse 15. That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Paul is telling us, Jesus emptied himself for our sake. His surrender to the will of God is what accomplished our salvation. Therefore, we too must surrender to the will of God to walk in that salvation. You don't accomplish anything apart from Him. In fact, your life in Christ is a response to God's initiative. Who is at work in you to both give you the will... And the good works that you might walk in them. According to his good pleasure. The question on the table here is, who will you follow? Will you follow Christ or will you follow the flesh? Those are the only two choices. Choose today whom you will serve. And know this. When you follow him, you will not walk in selfishness and empty conceit. Grumbling or disputing instead your life in Christ will be a beautiful and radiant light to the world What Paul describes here is a purity of purpose He says being innocent and, and blameless It brings with it this idea of a, a metal that's not mixed with alloy or or wine that is not diluted by water the, the picture I have in my own mind is this idea of what happens when you have electricity and a light bulb I think more simplistic than probably original terms intended. But you can have the purest source of electricity in the world, but the brightness of that bulb is ultimately determined by the purity of the connection between the source of electricity and the bulb itself. You probably had one of those frustrating lights in your house where you flick the light on and it kind of, tri- you know, kind of trickles and then all of a sudden it just glows real dimly. Nothing like what it was intended to do. It may be a 100-watt bulb, but it's only got 10 watts of light coming out of it. You have those in your house, I'm sure. (laughs) Most likely, when this happens, you have some kind of short in the wiring. Some kind of disturbance that is not allowing the full power of that electrical source to reach the light bulb so that it can do what it is designed to do. Give forth light. Well, in the same way, We, as his people, are designed by God to give forth light. The light of Christ. And when we live in in humble purity, his light shines bright through us in a dark and desperate world. All together, as these lights shine collectively in his body called the church, the manifold wisdom of god is displayed in that light of his church but when there's grumbling and disputing selfishness and empty conceit the church which is designed to be a beacon of hope only kind of flickers in the darkness what it produces is far less than what it is designed to be i believe knowing this idea, Paul turns to the Philippians as what seems to be a very personal plea. Look at verse 16. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you, too, I urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with you. With me, We talked about this in recent weeks in this passage that John wrote when he says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. (laughs) And what joy it is, especially for the Apostle Paul who has invested his life in the ministry of others and to see them bear fruit of this unity of who they are in Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's no greater joy for him. But I think we see from this verse there is... The other side of this coin it has an opposite effect. There, there is no greater pain than to see those who have been gifted with such unimaginable grace to turn around and to treat each other with such callous judgment. And the pain is not necessarily due to, to personal attack, although that may be true too. I, I think instead what Paul is describing here is the overwhelming grief that he feels when God's people are not living out what God has designed them to. To be, It is this sense of running in vain or, or toiling in vain. There is such a greater joy for all of us when we do all things without grumbling or disputing. When we live in humility, sacrificing our own rights and opinions to the, to the benefit of the other. Because when we do this, it is like a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. Our, our service to one another actually becomes an act of worship. It is a sweet aroma that ascends into the heavens and gives God pleasure as as His people live out what He made possible. And Paul develops this idea of sacrifice when he says, It's my joy for my life to be poured out as a drink offering upon your sacrifice and service of faith. Paul acknowledges that what he is calling them to is, in fact, a sacrifice. He says, your sacrifice and service of faith. Their faith in God and their service to one another is an act of worship. It is a sacrifice to the Lord. It costs them something when they relinquish their own rights to give preference to someone else in love. And Paul's drink offering, as in the Old Testament ceremony, was added as a complement to their sacrifice. His joy was to join them in that journey of faith. The the joy that Paul speaks of here is the joy of living in unity with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to the praise and glory of God. Living out our life as an act of worship to our God who made that life possible. Remember, we do not create unity. Remember what Paul tells the Ephesians when he says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When we humbly surrender our life to Christ, walking in the salvation that He made possible, we are united in the fellowship of the Spirit, and the bond of peace prevails. This is the the universal language of faith. You can go to any culture where they speak any language, and you will know it when you see it. It is the evidence of the Spirit of Christ and the love that they have for one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that this is what is being lived out right here in our own church family. That we would be united in spirit. Living out the reality of the bond of peace. I want you to know that I saw it happen this week in a church that worships in a concrete box. (laughs) I didn't understand the words they were singing. But I knew. I knew to whom they were singing those words. I felt it when a little Mexican lady half my size came up to me and grabbed my cheeks and kissed me like I was her long-lost son. (laughs) It's happening in villages and towns and cities around the world. And when we follow Christ in humble submission, it happens right here in Lubbock, Texas, in this church that we call Melanie Park. We are citizens of heaven. And we live in a crooked and perverse generation. This is a topic for another sermon, but I believe we are seeing some of the birth pangs of what it's going to look like before Christ returns. It's happening all around our broken world. So now, more than ever, may our mutual humility and love for one another radiate the light of Christ in this very desperate world. I've seen it. It's the universal language of faith, and it needs no translation. You'll know it when you see it. It exalts Christ above all things and gives all praise to the one true God. Let me close with these words from First John. and May they remind you. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Because he made that possible. Praise God. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for the gift of your salvation, which you have given us the privilege to live in, not because of what we have done to merit your favor, but because of your graciousness and your love towards us. May we live out, not to earn your favor, but because of your favor. May we have all humility because of the example that you set before us. May we follow um, your heart for your people and our love for one another. And in all this, may we collectively as your church, your people called by your name, radiate your name above all names, To the world around us. May we. Exhibit the manifold wisdom of God in the church. To the praise and glory of God. And it is in your name that we ask this. Amen.